But he is the master at understanding that if he could ask the right research question and answer it with good data, he could change policy. Welcome to the Journal of Special Operations Medicine. I'm your co-host, Alex Merkel. And I'm Josh Randles. And this is where evidence-based medicine meets unconventional warfare. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speaker's own, and nothing contained herein is to be considered the official opinion of the Journal of Special Operations Medicine or the U.S. government, including the Defense Health Agency, Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Navy, or Air Force. Hi everyone, this is Michelle Landers, founding publisher of the JSOM. I'd like to thank you for joining the JSOM's 20th anniversary interview series. We are excited to bring together a host of experts, all leaders in the soft medical community. In these interviews, we will be discussing the ever-evolving methods of treating battlefield trauma and injury, and how those methods have changed over the 20 years since the JSOM's inception. I hope you'll find these talks as informative as we do. And we are taking a well overdue detour away from Army to finally talk about the rest of our sister branches and have the distinct privilege of chatting with none other than the Dr. Stephen Rush today. Welcome to the show, sir. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. So I have been dying to ask you for years. I heard what I'm assuming is an apocryphal story of your surreptitious evolution into special operations medicine in that you decided to go down to the twin towers and saw some really awesome guys doing great things asked who they were and and decided that you needed to support them is that actually a true story because i think it's awesome well i'm so impressed that that's the story because it's not true at all (laughs) okay and i will tell you that i have a great slide that i start most of my talks with of New York PJs on the pile, you know, on September 12th with the FDNY guys. So maybe, you know, something got conflated. But basically, the only reason I'm in this thing is because I used to bike race and I raced with a guy who I met in the 2000s who was a PJ in the 90s. And I had read The Perfect Storm, the book The Perfect Storm, and learned about pararescue. Didn't realize that that team was on Long Island. And when I met him, he told me about his career and his background, and we became friends. And then one day, we're like going like 27, 28 miles an hour. He goes, well, you know, there's a PJ team on Long Island. I'm like, no, I don't know about it. And through a very unusual set of events that later followed, where I had friends who became the curators of the Cradle of Aviation Museum on Long Island, which is a world-class aviation museum, they said, hey, help us promote this thing. And I was like, I don't, what do I know about aviation? I'm a you know, radiation oncologist. I said, wait a minute, there are these guys on Long Island who are Air Force PJs and they're you know, going to war in Afghanistan, you should honor them. So they said, oh great, you honor them. And I have a problem saying no. <laughs> so I said, okay. And it literally took me a year to figure it out. I got in touch with them. And then I had some you know, experience in the past. I was an ER doc in the 80s and almost grandfathered in and had done a lot of outdoor stuff. And essentially they recruited me while I was creating a dinner to honor them. And I swore in at the age of 48 without having had any real intention in the past of joining the military, always admiring everybody who served and thought if there was an opportunity it would be a great thing to do. But 
that that's what happened. It was really accidental. And, you know, I'd always had this fondness for search and rescue for some reason. I have a fair amount of backcountry experience. I felt very connected to the mission and had, you know, really had been in the back of my head since reading The Perfect Storm. And it was really accidental and serendipitous, quite frankly. Wow. And I think what you were telling uh, a little bit is your background hasn't necessarily been in emergency medicine in the near future. So I would have to imagine that made the challenge of coming over and supporting these pre-hospital professionals even more challenging. Yeah. So I, I did have one thing going for me. In the 80s, I had done one year of surgery in Manhattan, and then I moved to Los Angeles to do laser angioplasty research, which fell apart. So I was pretty young. I had a surgical internship. And in those days, you were able to work in emergency rooms with an internship. So I was an ER doc for two years, just as the residencies were kicking in. And I loved it. And it was always in my blood. I've always stopped at accidents and really felt very connected to that kind of medicine. So I felt very comfortable with the austere, low resource nature of the business. And then, in fact, the more important thing was that as a radiation oncologist with a faculty appointment at NYU, I had been teaching doctors how to be doctors for 10, 15 years. And that's really, you know, the part that I've really focused on is this medical education piece, besides being the team doctor and the usual flight surgeon duties. But my, my passion has been this training and education piece, what can I do to help bring the best of America's best academic institutions to the battlefield for our warriors to get as many people home, number one, alive, but number two, paying attention to things like earlier resuscitation and more aggressive management of airways and hypoxemia to reduce morbidity and improve functional outcomes, whether they're CNS or reducing wound infections and trauma to the limbs. All right, so quick apologies out there. As uh, those of you who have heard in the past, I'm not very smart, and I screwed up the recording. So Dr. Rush was kind enough to pick up again with us, so you'll hear some differences in audio. Uh, But with that said, I think the topic that you mentioned we might be interested in chatting about today is en route care. And specifically, I think that's a great topic to cover because that is one of the big things that has changed in the last 20 years of the journal of special operations medicine being in publication. And, and I wonder where did this particular topic come from? What prompted a change within the military? Well, I'm going to give you my perspective and I lived through it. So I think it's relatively accurate. At the time I, I sworn in 2008, it was just before OEF got busy and the dust off medics were EMTBs and EMTIs. They were rarely paramedics in active duty. And then the 160th was doing, they were building their medic capability on their platform. And at the time until the Frago in like 2010 or 2011, where Pedro or the PJs, Pedro is a call sign for air force rescue picked up the Kazovac mission in Afghanistan. The PJs were sort of randomly doing some Kazovac and in-flight care. And that was the state of it. But Dustoff was really the dedicated asset for the Army and for the ground to evacuate, and particularly the conventional forces. So a couple of things happened. One is, is a lot of people became co-located. 
PJs and Dustoff and Mert down at Bastion. And I think there were two seminal things that that happened to change the complexion of how we train flight medics on the Army side. And that is, and again, full disclosure, I'm in the Air Force. I'm not the full expert. Court Cunningham and Bob Mabry can give a more eloquent discussion, but I'll give you my perspective. And one is that the PJs were co-located with the British Mert teams in big 47s, and they had something like two paramedics and nurse. And then if they knew they were going to pick up a cat alpha, an urgent surgical or an urgent patient, they brought an anesthesiologist or an ER doc. Usually I think it was an anesthesiologist. But in Britain, as you know, Britain and Australia, they have pre-hospital retrieval experts who are pre-hospitalists, and they're generally ER docs or anesthesiologists. And that's, I think, the pool they tapped into to build this capability. And they started showing that if they had an anesthesiologist at the head of the patient, they were getting a sternal IO and intubated in, you know, 60 seconds or 120 seconds. And they had one paramedic on each upper extremity and another paramedic or nurse on the lower extremities. So they, they had this drill where they'd get a critical patient and they would intubate the patient. They would, they would do a sternal IO, rapid sequence sedation and paralytic, and intubate and throw an on event. And the two people at the shoulders were putting in neural head IOs and then two units of blood going. And then that fourth person was doing hemorrhage control techniques. And that was, you know, a very well-oiled machine they had for a critical patient. And they were very honest because when I visited them, I was like, all right, what do you do for two, three, four, and five criticals? And they're like, well, we don't rehearse that. We only rehearse for one. And I, I really appreciate, you know, people being honest. Hey, that's what we can handle. And everything else we improvise, which is why I led, you know, and, and I'd say for the flight medics listening to this, and I know you guys and men and women are all professional, but one of the things that I learned from that is that, you know, we could get up to three litters in a 60 if you squeeze them in. And because the PJs aren't going to be able to move, you better have rehearsed beforehand where you're putting heads on the litters and which of the three PJs is doing what, whether two, one person is managing two airways and one person is managing everything else on those two people and another and the third PJ is managing the third alpha by themselves. You don't have to be a magician to know how many people you can get in your helicopter and and the different configurations of Alpha and Bravos and ha- how you should be tackling them. You should be rehearsing all that. That's what I learned from that. And and they started providing data, which took a little while to come out, but that so people who aren't hurt that much aren't going to benefit from critical care. And people who are hurt from catastrophic injuries that they won't survive will never survive. So it's this medium bin of ISS, injury severity scores, that they found there was an advantage to having that Merck team versus Pedro in looking at the Bastion data. And then the other thing, of course, was Dr. Mabry studied the outcomes in dust-off for a conventional dust-off team of EMTBs and eyes versus a reserve, I think it was reserve and not guard, but a reserve team of medics who were essentially civilian paramedics on the street. And I don't remember if they're from LA or California, but essentially they had better outcomes. Lo and behold, people who were more highly trained and were doing this stuff on a regular basis had better outcomes for more injured patients than lesser trained people because they were able to give blood and manage the airway better and things like that. 
situation. So that was the data that was essentially used to have the Army make the commitment to change to paramedic and flight medic for the, and I forget if your guys get critical care paramedic, but that was the change paper that helped the Army make that switch. So now the dust-off medics are super high speed. And what I wanted to do for you is compare and contrast that to the PJs who are, you know, essentially combat paramedics, but we don't spend as much time practicing advanced airway ventilators and, and the more critical care kind of medicine, pressors, stuff like that. So the PJ role is go in on these Air Force helicopters with miniguns as combatants and get off the helicopter, either engage in the ground fight or take the patients and then casavac them out. So because it's not a dedicated skill in flight care is one of, you know, making up a number, 25 competencies that the PJs have. So our PJs are not critical care paramedics and they're not flight medics like the SOAR medics and the dust-off medics, but we practice the basics of understanding vibration, altitude, hypoxia, you know, the basic stuff to understand the environment, nausea, vomiting, whatever. So that's one big difference, and that's how that's evolved. And we are not capable of creating that program because, again, in-flight care is one of 20, 30, 40 competencies. So that was one of the points that we thought would be important to highlight uh, as to where we are. You know, and again, I could speak uh, authoritatively for the Air Force capability, even though these are my own views. They're not the views of the DOD or the Air Force, but having been the Air Force Pararescue Medical Director for six years, I'm pretty comfortable talking about that. And having seen where, you know, and even the dust-off helicopters went from Blackhawks or 60s to the litter stanchions and the oxygen and the suction in the wall, you know, the first HH-60 mics that I saw, I was like, oh my God, I'm like in a hospital room. Yeah, absolutely. And I will certainly footstomp what you mentioned, which is I think everyone interested in this topic deserves to read Dr. Mayberry's outstanding manuscript in the Journal of Trauma, which is back from August 2012. And it's called The Impact of Critical Care Trained Flight Paramedics on Casualty Survival During Helicopter Evacuation in the Current War in Afghanistan. And um, it's just a beautifully done pre and post intervention, post hoc analysis, uh, retrospective analysis of data that showed a improved survival benefit and was therefore translated into practice. And I think, was it that article that kicked off your article that I read a, a few years ago that I, I'd also footstop for everybody, the 2013 Forward Aeromedical Evacuation, A Brief History, Lessons Learned from the Global War on Terror and the Way Forward for US Policy? So that's a great question, and it led me into something I was thinking about as you were talking about Doc Mabry's article, is they were unrelated in one sense, but in the other sense, for everybody who's on the line, if you're junior and you're going to stay in the military or you're mid-career and you're going to stay in, the importance of what Dr. Mabry did, like he is, you know, everybody gets upset when we praise each other, but he is the master at understanding that if he could ask the right research question and answer it with good data, he could change policy. So, you know, I'd say there are two reasons that I've really worked to publish on behalf of pararescue. 
One is internally, that is, there are things that I've looked at that have driven policy. So even unrelated to operational medicine, I wrote a paper on the role of MRI in special operators, treating them like professional athletes and getting early MRI and sending people to the OR early and having more mission readiness and having less time away from the unit and getting deconditioned. So I knew that if I could get TRICARE to approve MRIs earlier for us, you know, we'd have more mission readiness because we'd have less people sitting out longer waiting for the x-ray and then six weeks of physical therapy, you know, the conventional stuff before they let you see an orthopedist or get an MRI because most people get better. But by six weeks, a finely tuned athlete is deconditioned, right? So you start getting deconditioned as an elite athlete at two weeks. At six weeks, it takes you another 12 weeks. You double it to how, how much time it takes you to get back. So I knew that if I answered that question correctly, we could then go to TRICARE or, you know, I could get, you know, somebody with a star to call TRICARE and say, hey, you guys have to treat these guys differently. Here's the data and here's where it makes a difference. And we showed in some high number of injured operators, something like a third, we were able to make the decision whether to go to surgery right away or not, rather than just waiting and see how it went. So what Doc Mabry did was he was like, all right. It's, it's intuitive that, you know, if you have a critical care paramedic, they might save more lives than a EMTB. But can I show the data? And that's what he did, and he changed policy. So that was that paper. And I, and I really just want to keep reiterating that if you're going to go into leadership roles and you want to affect policy, particularly in medicine, we do it with data. And with decent studies, you know, you're going to convince generals to change policy. What happened with the FAME paper, Forward Aeromedical Evacuation, was that I think it was the Navy doc on there said like, hey, we need to write an article about where we are with forward aeromedical evacuation and leave it as a paper that people can use for the same reason to go back to the Pentagon. In the next war, we need the following capabilities. You know, this is where we're leaving off. And this is where you guys need to move forward. So one of the other things, again, for all of you who are going to become leaders down the road, is we in the military have been very guilty in military medicine of refinding lessons that we learned in one war and then having to refine them the first two years of the next war and then move forward. And that was what this paper was to do. And I would say it's totally worth reading because it gives you a brief history of aeromedical evacuation and battlefield evacuation, and then talks about the capabilities that we finished the bulk of OEF with. But more importantly, we came up with the idea of training people with capabilities and not degrees. Meaning, do we really have to put somebody through PA school or medical school or whatever medic program to be able to teach them to manage the airway and get two lines in and push blood in a helicopter. And it was the idea of creating a capability. And one of the things that I was able to contribute to that paper was if we have enough people like you who have a trauma PA fellowship, and then we stick you with people like Colonel DeBose at Baltimore Shock Trauma or Ryder, Martin Luther King or Charity or, you know, these high-end level three trauma centers, and you work there as a living, and you're essentially a shock trauma resuscitation expert, right? That's who we want in the helicopters for these critical patients, that you are expert at hemorrhage control techniques and 
blood resuscitation and airway management. So it was the idea of, you know, we don't have to commit doctors to this and maybe it's flight paramedics and maybe it's PAs, you know, people who have a certain amount of skills, but like their day job is, you know, working in Baltimore shock trauma. And that's kind of stuff that we should strive for is if we want somebody to be an expert resuscitationist, we want them doing that on the civilian side. We don't want them working in a family med clinic or a pediatrics clinic or an OB clinic. We want them knowing what shock looks like and all the permutations of that. So those were a couple of things that we thought about, but the papers were true, true and unrelated. They were both aimed at affecting policy and decision-making and strategic thinking, but they came up independently. And I think, I don't remember if Bob, I know he was on it. And I don't remember if he was one of the original, Doc Mabry, if he was one of the original authors or like me, he was asked to you know, be a representative of, of the green side or whatever. But they were independent, but they were both strategically driven. And so, you know, in talking about how in route care has changed in the last 20 years, I'm really excited to see on your podcast the discussion about the new PJ manual that should be coming out shortly. And I wondered maybe you could talk us through a little bit about the evolution of the PJ um, handbook over the last 20 years, as well as I think, I'm not sure how involved you are with the SMOG, the standard medical operating guidelines for the Army side, but those seem to go along in parallel and a really standardized organized practice. And I'm, I'm curious about what research went into those protocols. I got into the career field in 08. I started going to these national meetings, 09 or 10. And, you know, number one, the head of pararescue medicine was the air combat command surgeon general. And pararescue was a tiny piece of that person's portfolio. And generally, there was not a lot of leadership. And often, the the role of the ACC SG was more related to OC Health and pilots across the force. And pararescue medicine was really a very small piece of it, even though it you know it was like high risk, high reward kind of medicine. So when I got in, number one, we didn't really have a person who was dedicated to pararescue medical direction. That's number one. Number two, the handbook at the time. The first thing that struck me was there were 20 antibiotics in it. And I'm like, I haven't met a PJ yet who knows any of these antibiotics. And then I saw what TCCC was doing with Moxie and Ertapenem. And I'm like, this is clearly how to go, you know, is, is you know, I, I always tell the story. I remember in med school, I was like, who the heck is going to remember all these blood pressure meds? And they said, listen, most people learn five to 10 meds. They get super comfortable with them. And then if, patients need more meds than that they either go to a nephrologist or they look it up and add it but people use the meds they're comfortable with so i said yeah this is what we should be doing in pararescue medicine and essentially what i think is that the handbook was written in the 90s by two awesome er docs who were pj docs but they wrote the handbook from an emergency room perspective you know i got into this because i'm an outdoors guy a wilderness guy and I've had a fair amount of wilderness medical experience in my life. And, and I started seeing, like, whatever's in the handbook, we can't do hanging from a rope on belay on a ledge or in a helicopter that's doing evasive maneuvers. And the handbook was written for an emergency room. It wasn't written for, you know, these various field environments. And it wasn't taking 
a lot of tactical stuff into account. So when I rewrote the handbook, it was let's leave off OEF and make it current based on, you know, 2012, 2013 OEF, but then let's make it realistic to what the operations are. You know, we'll have like best case scenario, the best medicine we could deliver, but it's always degraded by the cold or the rain or enemy contact. I feel that was the perspective that I approached it with so that the operators had a real expectation of what they should be doing and what the bar would be. It wasn't going to be low, but it was going to be realistic. The other thing that I want to say is that I was very diligent about trying to message how to do the treatment. So one of the things we created are what we call the MTPs, you know, because everybody wants to have their own name for stuff. So instead of, you know, the ATP book, we have the PJMTPs, Medical and Trauma Protocols, which is essentially the same as the ATP book. But I think what I did was I packaged it differently. So for those of you who have never read the book, The Talent Code, I recommend it. It was a commander from Buds who recommended it to me. It covers the basics of how adults learn and how we develop mastery. So in the teaching part, we want a message in a very certain way. So, you know, the example I give is what we call a combat shock protocol, which is a hemorrhagic shock protocol. So essentially, it's two lines, blood, TXA, and calcium. But if everybody knows that we've identified somebody in shock on the battlefield, and we say they get in the shock protocol, they're going to get two, two lines, blood, TXA, and calcium, you know, in certain orders or whatever. But the point is, a team leader could say to a young PJ, hey, dude, you know, I just checked this guy's radial pulse. It's weak. He bled a lot. He needs the shock protocol. So we're all speaking the same language. But more importantly, when we say the shock protocol, that's called chunking it up. That includes, you know, making up a number, 20-part tasks, vascular access, the pharmacology of TXA, the concepts of, you know, fibrinolysis and coagulopathy, the role of citrate in causing hypocalcemia. There's all these things when we say the shock protocol that PJs or operators have been taught. But when we say shock protocol, everybody knows what it is in a macro way, what to do. But the chunking it down is, you know, all these part task cognitive skills and psychomotor skills that you need to do the thing. That was probably the final thing that I want to talk about in writing the handbook was being sensitive to what we call andragogy or how adults learn and the neuroscience of adult learning versus pedagogy, which is how children learn because their brains are so plastic. It's so easy to help them learn. But with adults, you know, we want it to be experiential. We want it to be self-motivated. That was a lot of what I was thinking about and how to message how we package the uh, protocols and stuff like that. Uh, the last thing he asked me about was smog. So I was not involved in that. I'm honored to have been asked back in 2014 or 2015 to go over the dust off protocols and look at their algorithms, which I thought were much too complicated. But that was my feedback. Like there's too much going on here. But they were, you know, they were super well written. And I thought they were written by medical leaders. And right now I'm in, in the process of finishing the COTSI TBI protocol. And the last thing I did before I'm sending it back is I had about eight to 10 medics from all soft branches plus senior 68 whiskeys is I want medics to combat on my protocols. Like, I don't care if my best friends who are 06 trauma surgeons, like I want them to get the science down, but in terms of how the protocol is written and how it's going to be delivered, I want the last people who sign up on the protocol to be medics. So those would be things that I would love to leave the audience with as it related to my input on 
you know, the handbook and looking at the dust off protocols and then where we are with the Kotsi stuff now. Got it. And as we um, head towards wrapping up the, the discussion here about the vast evolution in, in, in route care, we always like to end with asking the question about data. So how have we quantified the benefit to the injured soldier, sailor, airman, or now spaceman, I guess? <laughs> how have we quantified the benefit through data extraction and review for the implementation of all these changes to care? Well, I would say that on a micro level, the joint trauma system has their weekly trauma conference, and then they have a process improvement conference. So much like hospital morbidity and mortality surgical conferences, they're looking at each case and saying, what did we do right and what do we need to do better? And then how do we institutionalize that and make it systematically accepted? So I would say that's the first thing in Colonel Shackelford Gurney, Mike Remley, you know, all these people are like heroes to me because they're just they're just working the minutia of this thing and then creating institutional changes. So I think so that's one way. And then the other is people like you and me who are like, hey, can we get access to the data and write a paper about something and see if what we're doing works? So I'm not intimately involved with the data analysis for the JTS. We have had our own battles trying to create our pararescue registry, but the future is going to be in consolidated data analysis that comes in electronically through various data collection means, which will hopefully be, you know, from the point of injury and then immediately entered into JTS database where the patients are followed longitudinally. And what we really want to know, you know, from the pre-hospital space is let's look at did we get the person to the MTF, but what happened to them in three years and five years? So like something I'm really interested in is can we tie how diligent we were about preventing hypoxemia and hypotension to cognitive outcomes three and five years later? I always say to the guys, you know, yeah, when we started the war, everybody talked about tourniquets and chest seals and got the patients to the MTF, but that's what every soldier and Marine should be doing is stopping the bleeding and opening an airway to some degree. What we want to see combat paramedics doing is reperfusion and early treatment of shock with blood products, accurate management of severe TBIs, cleaning out wounds and giving antibiotics within an hour. And then we want to tie it longitudinally, which we have not done to how much does that impact cognitive loss down the road for a severe TBI patient, or outcomes of limbs in terms of reducing wound infection or decreasing sepsis and septic shock in the ICU three to eight days later in the unit. So we haven't done that yet, but I, you know, this is what my brilliant colleagues on the TCCC committee and Doc Cotwall and people have really pushed the DD-1380. Ultimately, we want to tie not just how many people do we get to the first roll two or roll three alive? We want to tie what was the benefit of giving early antibiotics? What was the benefit of starting blood earlier and earlier as we've done? You know, did that reduce the incidence of multiple organ failure in the ICU four days later? You know, and then did that lead to better discharges and, and more functional recoveries at one, three, and five years, that kind of thing. So, we haven't exploited it yet, 
And all this begins with the medics who are the first men and women taking care of our patients or warriors or casualties and doing good documentation and then making sure it's entered into the system. So, you know, again, Court Cunningham might have better essay on this or Ted Redmond, some of these other people who were on dedicated evac platforms. But I think we're just in the phase where we want to make it culturally important that the medics fill out the data and submit it to the joint trauma system. And then, you know, we exploit it in these longitudinal fashions in terms of tying the care and the battlefield to outcomes. The things that the medics never see, these downstream things, which is why it's so important when we train medics in TCCC, especially combat paramedics, that we explain it's not just stopping the bleeding and making a breeze. That's the beginning of it. But then it's all the other stuff that separates you from other medics or first responders in terms of doing the more sophisticated stuff. And I think we all know that, you know, we're not far from 68 whiskeys, hopefully having access to freeze-dried plasma and things like that and having the conventional corpsmen and medics doing resuscitations, you know, right at the point of injury. So I don't have a direct answer for you. I don't know how this all translates into better outcomes yet in terms of big data. In terms of little data, it's process improvement, hitting singles and doubles instead of grand slams and changing it as we go. Uh, And then having really interested, smart docs and medics who want to answer these questions by having them ask them and have access to the data. And the data begins with with all of us documenting and entering it into the system. And so that actually makes me really curious because I so enjoy hearing on your podcast all of the mission briefs for your guard units who are doing just incredible missions on a regular basis. And what I hear you tell those guardsmen almost every time is that they need to call the hospital and get follow-up. And I'm curious, are you guys aggregating any of that data? Because that seems really incredible to look at outcomes. Yeah, so, you know, the biggest thing that we've done that we published last JSOM issue was this outcomes of long-range ocean rescue, which was the first case series of its kind. And I could tell you that we've failed for a variety of reasons. Part of it is HIPAA. Part of it is sometimes we take people to hospitals in other countries and we just can't do it. But like I could tell you, like we had a bear mauling in Alaska a few years ago and the person got bit in the head and wound up getting encephalitis. And I'm like, dudes, you guys are out there overnight with these people. We should be using antibiotics just like we do in Afghanistan. And maybe we could have prevented that encephalitis or something. So it's not codified. We haven't done a good job of it. We need to do a better job. And that's the beauty of the joint trauma system conferences, because now they're starting to provide some people post rehab. So we're getting feedback. You know, I think we're just scratching the surface and it's really going to be related to the ability to collect data and maintain it longitudinally. And I would say that I wish we were doing a better job. I really like that that a lot of the operators are interested and they just try and follow up on their own. And I will say one thing that was really big in Operation Bulldog by Roger Sparks' story. You can hear on my podcast, and he wrote a book. He evacuated a couple of deceased soldiers, and he had like 
literally had their blood on him and maybe pieces of their patches or their uniform. And he was ultimately able to go have dinner with one or two of these families. And they were like, you were the last person to hold my son alive. And it was very meaningful. And I would say one thing we don't do well in this business is closure. And a lot of times, whether that's following up with the injured service member, yeah, it's just everybody's job, but it's very meaningful to both parties to follow up with these people and have some sort of relationship or even the families of people we recover to people to get their remains back, to have a proper burial and things like that. So that would be one other thing that I throw out there that we should do a better job in the department of defense, linking up the rescuers and the rescuees and the docs and all that sort of stuff. Awesome. Well, doc rush, such a privilege and a pleasure. And for, Everyone in wearing a uniform who's had the privilege of working with PJs. It's just incredible to see the profound difference that's come through your career field over the last 20 years and continue to appreciate all of the public work that your guard folks do and some of the not public work that, that your members do to support our special operations forces overseas. This is Sophia Rodriguez, Director of Marketing and Social Media Communications for the JSOM. I want to encourage our listeners to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at JSOM Online, and to sign up to receive our free e-newsletter on our website at jsomonline.org. We love hearing from our subscribers and followers and welcome your feedback and suggestions. Music.